Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent, from New York, we're joined by Robert Armstrong, our US financial editor. And our guest this week, Lambros Kilianiotis, a partner at law firm RPC. This week, we'll be talking about Barclays and the Bank of England intervention to attempt to block the serious fraud office investigation into the bank. The latest fines over the manipulation of foreign exchange. And finally, from the US, banks' non-performing loan numbers are ticking up. So let's now turn to the story about Barclays and how several years ago now the Bank of England was so concerned about the potential case against the bank over its Qatari fundraising that it tried to gently intervene, perhaps to persuade the SFO that it shouldn't prosecute the bank. Is that the long and short of it, Caroline? Yes, this goes back to the first half of 2017, before the Serious Fraud Office decided to charge Barclays as a corporate entity over its arrangements with Qatar during the financial crisis, when it turned to Qatar and investors from various other countries for a total of £12 billion to stay out of UK government control. What I learned is that Sam Woods, who is the Deputy Governor at the Bank of England, who heads the Prudential Regulation Authority, went personally to warn David Green, the director of the SFO, that in the PRA's view, a criminal charge could represent a safety and soundness issue for the bank. So it could ultimately weigh on its ability to fund itself and its capital levels. He said he was meeting Sir David to assist in weighing up the public interest. And that's important because Each time the director of the SFO has to come to a charging decision, he not only has to weigh up how much evidence there is, but also whether it's in the public interest to actually charge an individual or entity. So the reason why this is particularly important is that it comes after there have been various other attempts by the UK government or other UK authorities to try and plead the case for banks and for prosecutors to ultimately go easy on them. If you remember back in 2012, George Osborne, who was then the Chancellor, wrote to Ben Bernanke of the Fed in the US asking for lenience in the case of HSBC in its separate money laundering investigation. So I think the question is really about whether there are still concerns 11 years after the onset of the financial crisis as to whether some big banks are ultimately too big to jail. And there's obviously the question of the independence of the SFO as well. I think what we should also point out is that ultimately the SFO went ahead and charged Barclays regardless and the share price hardly moved and ultimately the PRA's concerns weren't borne out. The bank was perfectly able to withstand the charge. And last year, in fact, those corporate charges were ultimately scrubbed against the bank. So it hasn't had to face a jury trial or anything like that. Yes, of course. And just to bring people up to date on the other Barclays legal issue that's out there, this is the case brought against four former bankers at the institution. 
remind us what's happened there. Yeah, so the SFO at the same time in 2017 charged the bank's CEO at the time, John Varley, and three other top bankers at the time. All I can say on that is that Mr Justice Jay dismissed a jury in March. OK, we will keep watching. Thank you very much, Caroline. Well, let's move on to our second story and a look at the foreign exchange manipulation story. This is a long-running tale. goes back several years, Stephen, when we saw a lot of banks punished, particularly by the US authorities and by the UK authorities, over the manipulation of FX rates. Last week, though, we saw the EU authorities join the party. What exactly has happened? Well, on the back of $5.3 billion worth of fines a few years ago, as you said, from British and American authorities, now the EU's competition watchdog has fined five banks €1 billion. The one worst hit was Citigroup, which had $311 million, but there was also RBS, JP Morgan, Barclays and Japanese bank MUFG involved. Interestingly, UBS managed to escape its own almost 300 million euro fine by essentially flagging this chat room to authorities and thereby acting as a whistleblower in this case. You talk there about a chat room. Is that basically what this all goes back to? Is the same accusations as the American and UK authorities? Exactly. The traders at the five banks I mentioned, they all participated in chat rooms with amusing names such as the three-way banana split and the Essex Express, basically colluding. Because these banks were so large and powerful in currency markets, they could collude to move prices by tiny amounts, which would result in more profits, more earnings for specific traders on the desk. And of course, all of this was recorded on the Bloomberg terminal where they all participated on it. And therefore, they were caught out pretty easily. I'll come back to you in a minute because there is one other bank I want to talk to. But let me bring in Lambros Kilinotis from RPC. As a lawyer, what's your impression as why this has happened now? It's many years since the US and UK authorities went after this scam. Well, the first point to note is this has been and continues to be a very complex investigation uh, by the Commission involving a number of banks and large volumes of data going back a number of years. As we've heard, all of this started back in 2013 when UBS went in and applied for immunity. Obviously, decisions announced last week this sort of timetable is not unusual in these type of cases. However, the reason of what can be perceived as a delay is likely to be that in the overwhelming number of other cases, all the banks essentially settled or entered into plea bargains with the Commission, meaning that those decisions came relatively quickly. The Commission and the banks in this case also started onto the settlement path. However, halfway through, Credit Suisse publicly withdrew from that settlement negotiation and therefore, for them at least, the timetable is changed but also meant a slippage in the timetable generally. That's what I wanted to ask you about, Stephen. Why has Credit Suisse pulled out and what is likely to happen for them from here on? Well, Credit Suisse doesn't think the EU Competition Commission has a case against its traders in the chat rooms and therefore is refusing to pay up and settle, which has also dragged another bank, which we've reported has been involved, HSBC, with them as well. So these will be delayed and presumably, if found guilty, they will have a much harsher fine and potential other sanctions from regulators. But at the moment, it looks like this is going to drag on for years because they're not cooperating with authorities in the same way. Now, this is quite a bold stance. We've seen lots of banks decide to fight authorities around the world. Some of them have won. Barclays managing to pay much less 
for selling dodgy toxic mortgage bonds in the US, limiting that fine at $2 billion. And then we've seen them spectacularly backfire, such as UBS trying to fight French allegations of tax evasion and ending up getting fined more than four times as much at €4.5 billion. Euros. So we'll watch this space with Credit Suisse. Let me come back to Lambros for a final thought on this. Obviously, these are pretty large fines, especially on top of the US and UK penalties from a few years ago. But I guess there could be more to come in terms of investor redress. And I guess you have a personal interest in that potentially. Indeed. I think this is not the end of the story for the banks. As a matter of EU and UK law, any person who's been affected by such anti-competitive behaviour can seek damages in the national courts. We've got lots of parties who've been involved in Forex, lots of major parties, uh, institutional investors, pension funds, etc., which we think they're already looking at potential losses. And the EC decision essentially gives them the springboard for bringing those claims. And given the large number of Forex trades that goes through London, we expect that such lawsuits would be very substantial indeed. And how soon can we expect that to happen? One lawsuit has already been filed and there is a few others in the pipeline as well. So we would see probably this year and next year a few more coming forward. Well, we should keep in touch on that. Thank you very much for your thoughts. So for our final item, we'll go to the US to look at the performance of the banks over the last three months. Um, particularly an interesting trend that Rob Armstrong, our US financial editor, has seen in the non-performing loan numbers. Rob, thanks very much for joining us. So what has happened to banks' NPLs? Well, what we saw for the first time in about three years in the first quarter and what we have seen in the first weeks of the second quarter is that non-performing loans, loans that are not paying back on time, in banks' business lending portfolios are rising for the first time in about three years, both at the biggest business lending banks, banks like J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo, and smaller regional banks. Now, I should note that non-performing business loans are still at historically very low levels. What's interesting here is not the absolute amount of business loans, but rather the fact that at a time when interest rates are still very low and the economy in the United States is still absolutely humming, we're actually seeing an increase, even from a low base, of borrowers who are in trouble. And what really is the drive of this? Why have we seen this uptick? Well, that's an interesting question because unlike three years ago, the last time we saw a big spike in non-performing business loans, there is not a single industry that's in trouble. Three years ago, oil fell to $35 a barrel, and a lot of oil producers and oil-dependent companies, especially in America's shale oil regions, got into trouble, and a lot of loans went bad. There's not a single sector that is having trouble today. Now, there was one big bankruptcy in January, PG&E, the big California utility, went bankrupt because of liabilities associated with the big wildfires out there, which allegedly, at least, some of its equipment paid a big role in starting. This time around, though, we know that that one big bankruptcy is not enough to account for the general increase across many banks that we saw in non-performing loans. Instead, we see sort of a mishmash 
of little problems. Some problems in sectors such as restaurants, some in healthcare, some in retail, but the problem doesn't seem to be any particular sector. Interestingly, an executive speaking at a conference at one of the big bank lenders, M&T Bank of Buffalo, said just a few days ago that what he was seeing was management teams who are simply adding too much debt and getting over their skis a little bit, especially borrowing to do deals that, in his words, they couldn't quite pull off. So this may be a management rather than an industry problem. Should we be worried about this? What's the kind of longer term concern? I think the answer there is not yet. It's very hard to imagine any kind of business credit crisis when the economy is so strong, unemployment is so low, and interest rates are so moderate. The question is, what happens when the economy slows, rates increase, or, God help us, both happen at the same time? Even in that case, though, I don't think we're talking about a systemic risk for the banks, a la 2008. Instead, what we're talking about is an increasing number of loan write-offs that would pinch profits at banks after a number of years in which profits have been steadily rising. So the question is not, are the banks in existential trouble, I would say. The question instead is, are banks at a risk of going into a down cycle in terms of their profits? Well, that's it for this week. My thanks to Robert Armstrong, our US financial editor, Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent, and Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, as well as our guest from RPC, Lambros Kilianiotis. All that's left for me to do is to thank you for listening. And remember, if you're not already an FT subscriber, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com slash offer. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.